Have you ever been um, sitting in on a conversation where you're kind of outside the group, not understanding what anyone's talking about? We've probably all experienced this. When I was in seminary, when we were in Greek, we'd have people over to our house, and Allison made a rule, you couldn't talk about Greek there. So that we wouldn't disconnect with the people who didn't understand or didn't care. You know? I think every field or hobby has this. We have our own language, our own words, or separate meanings for common words. My wife, Allison's an elementary school teacher, so when she's around teachers, they start talking about school. Been around it enough that I get most of the conversation now, but not all of it. Or people in the medical field, I just kind of check out, don't know the words. And some people are really good at bringing outsiders into the conversation, right? But we often have a really hard time with that to make it intelligible to those outside of the group, to make them understand and be able to participate. Um, and if we're honest, I think we do this with Christianity a lot. We have a hard time communicating the truth of God and the good news of Jesus to those who don't already believe in God or the Bible, or even to those who do but haven't been running in our circles for long enough. We talk about this sometimes as Christianese, all the words we use that make no sense if you haven't been in it for a long time. I think that's a challenge we should work to overcome. We try to do that here at Emmaus Road. We use the words and then try to define them. Um, but even beyond that, we assume people already believe most of what we believe. We still assume that people believe in God. We assume that they know they need to be saved, which probably isn't true. We talk about sin, but they say there's no such thing. And some of you might feel this in your bones. You might come in here and feel like a total outsider. Like we don't even understand you, like we're just talking past you. Like you're the only non-doctor in the group of doctors talking together and just nodding along, wondering, do they actually recognize that I'm here? Do they see me? Do they care? I wonder what the special is at Authors on Friday for dinner or whatever other things go through your mind. Those are some of the things I think um, when I'm being talked past and don't understand the conversation that's happening, Right? Well, in our passage today, we're going to see what it looks like when the Word of God goes to people that don't share the same backgrounds, that don't share the same beliefs, that don't share the same religious vocabulary. So let's look together at Acts 14, and we're going to take it in sections as we go. So we're just going to start with verses 8 to 10 right now. Hear God's Word. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would be with us this morning, that you would attend to your word, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see you, that by your spirit you would work in us that we might understand, and by your spirit you would work it into our hearts and minds that we might know you and love you more deeply, that you would transform us more and more into the image of Christ this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome, we're continuing on in our study of the book of Acts right now. Acts is kind of the story of the early church from right after um, Jesus' crucifixion through about 
uh, 60 AD-ish, the first 30 or so years in the church, and we see Christianity start to spread. It starts in Jerusalem, and then it goes to the area around it, Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. It's kind of what the book's about, and we're progressing in that, and we're hitting the ends of the earth now with these um, so-called missionary journeys that the Apostle Paul goes on. And Paul and Barnabas today are on what we call the first missionary journey. They've gone from kind of Syria, just north of, north of Israel, to Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean. Now they're working up their way um, through Galatia, which is now uh, modern-day Turkey is kind of where we're going to be spending our time today. They went through towns of um, Antioch, then Iconium, and now we're going to be in Lystra. And their practice would be they'd go into the synagogue, the Jewish place where they would meet together, where Jews that had been dispersed throughout the world would meet together and hear God's word. And they would go to those places where people are gathered, where people share these beliefs, that share this background, people who believe in Yahweh, the God of Israel. They believe in the scriptures as the word of God. And they would preach this message. And what they would often focus on and what we see from some of the examples is Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised Savior that they'd been waiting for. That's this message they're preaching to these people who share this background, who fear the Lord, who believe in him. And you'd have Jews and non-Jews, what the Bible calls God-fearers, who believed in him but hadn't converted to Judaism. They're coming to faith. They're believing this message. But there are some Jews who are very opposed to it, who um, reject it. And they actually are going to be hunting down Paul today. And so they've just been run out of Iconium, and they come to the uh, town of Lystra. So they were driven out through persecution. The Jews there wanted to stone them. They wanted to kill them. And it says that they left, well, first Antioch they left because of persecution, and it finishes, the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit, even though they're being persecuted. That's how that tag ends, joy in the Holy Spirit. And then they flee Iconium because they wanted to kill them, and they continue to preach the gospel. So now they come to Lystra, which is kind of this uh, frontier town, this little podunk town with no synagogue, so they don't have that same place to go. There's a small temple to Zeus there, different people. It's not a community of Gentiles that fear God. There's not a large group of Jews who share this heritage that they can go to. They're not religious intellectuals. They're people who don't believe in Yahweh. They're people who don't believe in the Bible. And that's the reality of the culture that we're in more and more. It's more and more like this every day. Forty years ago, you could assume people believed in God. You could assume that they believed in the Bible, that it was God's word. They might not have followed it, but you could say, see, you're a sinner. You need a savior. And they would understand that. But that's happening less and less. These days, uh, many have religious backgrounds still, especially in our community. They've heard of the Bible. They've heard of the Ten Commandments. But fewer and fewer have actually read it. And even fewer believe it's true in any real sense. That it's just kind of our history. Maybe that's some of you here this morning. Maybe you know it, but you don't really believe it. So how do we communicate without talking past people, without merely saying, it's true, so you better believe it? Because that's what it can feel like sometimes when we're sharing the gospel, doesn't it? So how do we see the gospel go forward among people who don't believe in God? 
We're going to see it this morning through Christians who care for the needy, who confront their idols, and who continue through hardships. Those will be the three points. Care for the needy, confront their idols, and continue through hardships. You see this first one, care for the needy, in verses 8 to 10, which I just read. So it begins with this crippled man here. That's how it starts. Paul is speaking, but it starts with the crippled man. And Paul sees him. He looks intently at him. He doesn't look past him. He stares at him in all of his weakness. This is what we tell our kids not to do, right? Someone's in a wheelchair. Tell them, don't stare at them. (laughs) Paul stares at him. Paul says, I see you. I see you where you are. And he addresses it. He heals him. And this miraculous healing follows the pattern that we've seen previously. It's very similar to one Jesus did and then one Peter did. And it confirms the message of the gospel. It says, what's being said is true. That it brings restoration and healing, which is the message of the gospel. But it brings it even into this physical world in little um, foretastes now. It shows that the gospel isn't mere words. Now, I don't think we should expect to heal people as Jesus, Peter, and Paul do. But at the same time, we should have the same compassion. We should have actions that accompany our words. And this is especially true in care for the needy. That's throughout the Bible. It's perfectly clear, especially in the book of James, where you think of him saying things like, we're to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Or he tells him, religion that is pure and faultless before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things that are needed for the body, then what good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So Alice and I moved here, it's almost five years now, which is kind of crazy, but we uh, moved up here from St. Louis. While we were there, we followed the Cardinals. We keep up with the games and news. We go to games all the time. It's just a fun baseball city. But now that we're removed from it, I don't really follow baseball. I'll check the standings every once in a while. And yes, Dan, I know that the Brewers are in first place and we're in last place four games back. But I don't even recognize most of the roster anymore. Uh, Yachty and Wayno are gone, you know, let alone the details of any game. It's dropped so far on my priority list, I don't, I don't put in the work. Right? There's nothing coming through. But I've still got the gear. Lucy and I just wore matching Cardinals hats the other day. Still got a Cardinals shirt that I wear around, and I still wear them. When I do, Dan usually says something. If the Brewers are doing well, if they're not, he doesn't. Um, And I have to say, you know, I really don't know. I haven't been watching. There's this inconsistency in my life between what I'm portraying and how I'm living. And we can be like that pretty easily. We'll wear the Christian shirt. Put on the hat, figuratively, maybe some of you do it literally, but uh, figuratively for many of us, we want people to see us and hear us and think we're following Jesus. But then when they look at our lives, when they really press in, are we following him or do we just have the shirt? 
We say all this stuff about care for the needy, for the vulnerable, for the sick, for the sojourner. But do we close ourselves off with our other well-to-do, comfortable Christians? Actions have to accompany our words. Word and deed always goes together in the Bible. That's why there are elders who preach the word and then deacons, even the two offices, word and deed, they always go together. Why would any outsider think that we believe what we say if there's not some consistency to our message and how we live? And if we don't really believe it, why should they? Caring for the needy can help us gain an audience with unbelievers. This is true as we think about the gospel going forward here and about the critiques we hear of the church, right? A bunch of hypocrites say one thing, do another. Do we actually believe what we say? Does it affect the way that we live? But gaining an audience with unbelievers is not the main reason for it. It's that it follows Jesus' character. Follows our Savior. He has compassion on the needy, on the poor, on the marginalized. Do we? If you're like me, it's easy for us to maybe give money and not get our hands dirty, to lose control. It's easy to schedule our good deeds at our convenience. not saying we shouldn't do those things. I think we should. And if we have no exposure um, to the needy, that can be a good way to start that working in our own hearts, right? But how do we respond when we're confronted by it? On the street, when it moves into our neighborhood, when we're not in control and managing our own exposure to it? Do we want to keep them at a safe distance? Do we react in fear? Do we hope that someone else will take care of the problem? That's often how we see it. Or do we have compassion? Do we love? Do we care for the needy? We probably won't work miracles to confirm the message of the gospel, but our care for the needy will confirm it. It will show that we have been changed. It will show that those who have been neglected and rejected can actually be accepted and loved, which is what Christ has done for us. So if we want to see the gospel spread through us, we must care for the needy. But it doesn't stop there. Instead, it leads us to confront their idols. Look at verses 11 to 18. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. 
Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So the people see this healing and they recognize the divine power behind it. And they say, they're God, Zeus and Hermes. There was legend that uh, Zeus and Hermes had come down previously in the likeness of men. So this doesn't kind of come out of nowhere. It fits with their history there. But Paul and Barnabas don't even know what's going on because they're saying it in a language they don't understand until the priest comes up and wants to sacrifice to them. So what do they do? They tear their garments. They rush out say, what are you doing? Stop, we're just men. It's interesting. They say, we're bringing you good news. What's the good news? That you should turn from these vain things. That Greek word is it's empty things, worthless things. And it's a, it's a Greek word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses for idols at a couple places too. To turn from these empty idols to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. He did let you go your own way, but he didn't leave you without witness. But was good to you. He sent you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying or filling full. You see the contrast between empty and filling full. Your hearts with food and gladness. Common grace is a word we use for this. We sang about it in This is My Father's World. All the good that everyone sees. You got to think about how people related to the pagan gods then. They would sacrifice to them to placate them, to please them, so that they would feed their hunger, so that the gods would be kind to them, so that they'd give them what they wanted so that they could live the good life, so that they could live in peace. They were demanding. Just didn't want to make them angry. What's the good life to you? What's the thing or the things that you're waiting on or working toward? That if you got it or arrived there, you'd say, I've arrived. I'm fulfilled. My life is a success. And then to whom or what are you making sacrifices to get there? We probably aren't slaughtering bulls and goats, but we sacrifice to our own idols as well. To paraphrase Bob Dylan, you're all going to serve somebody. Not Zeus, but career success, having the perfect family, your kids' opportunities and success. We're not all that different from the pagans. And our gods are just as fickle. You can sacrifice your marriage, your family, your spiritual life to your career. And it'll only ask for more. You can make one mistake or not even make a mistake. company can choose to go in another direction. Optics can look bad. You can have a false accusation made against you. It's gone like that. We're our kids. We spend all this money that we don't have and could use on other things so that they'll have these opportunities. We pull them out of church and out of Christian community so that they can play sports or the piano or whatever else. 
But what happens when they decide that they don't want to play anymore? And that you're the one that pushed them into it. You're the one that made them miserable. Or even if that doesn't happen, they just grow up and move away. You don't see them anymore. When they've consumed your life and now they're gone, what do you do? Or you put all your eggs in the retirement basket when you can finally enjoy life. And then you get a diagnosis that says it won't last long and you won't be able to do half of what you thought. Look, a career and kids, they're not bad things. They're good things. But even good things make tyrannical gods. They won't fill you. Your job will not give you fulfillment. You might enjoy it at times, but it will not fulfill you. A spouse will not fulfill you. Stop expecting them to. You can give them everything, and if they're all you have, you will be left empty. Turn from these vain things, these empty idols to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. You've been going after these empty things. But even then, even then, God has been the one who has filled your heart with food and gladness. Even the glimpses of joy that you've had from these empty things were actually gracious gifts from a kind God. The God you've been ignoring. He's not like those gods. It's demanding from us. He's a God who's giving graciously to us even when we're rejecting him. And if we've gotten these glimpses while we've ignored him, imagine what we could have if we turned to him. If we acknowledge him and come to him. What are you living for? How's that going for you? Or what if you get it? What then? Real question you should ask this week. Turn from those empty things to the living God. To the one who, unlike your idols, when you fail him, he doesn't hold it against you. He doesn't crush you and destroy you. He forgives you because of Christ. And when your job and your family and whatever else is actually put in its proper place, then you can see it as it is. You can see it as a gift from God. And instead of demanding fulfillment from it, you can actually enjoy it as a good gift from Him. It's interesting that Paul says he has good news for them and then doesn't mention Jesus. Right? I'm sure he gets there especially if you consider that they're in Galatia and if you've read Paul's letter to the Galatians. <laughs> but he doesn't start there. He doesn't begin with, you're a sinner, repent. He begins with something they understand, with a point of connection, linking their common human experience to the truth of Scripture. It starts with understanding that there is one true and living God. And that deep down we all know it. He's left us ample witness to it. So how can we help people see it? 
We must care for the needy. We must confront our idols and turn from them to the living God. And finally, we will continue through hardships. Verses 19 to 23. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium, to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. It's kind of crazy to think about how much these Jews really hated the message that Paul and Barnabas were preaching. They didn't have cars, right? So they're mostly walking. And some of them followed 90 miles from Antioch to Iconium. They gather a few more and then come another 20 miles because they hate them. They hate what they're saying. It's ironic when you consider that Paul was doing the same thing when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, that he was hunting down Christians. Right now he has Jews hunting him down to kill him. And the Jews think they succeed. They persuade the people of Lystra who were just worshiping them. And then they stone Paul. They literally pick up rocks and throw them at him until they think he's dead. And they drag his limp body out of the city and dump him by the side of the road. Seems crazy that things could change so quickly, but it's not all that different from what we just saw this last week. Where Jesus comes into Jerusalem and people are shouting, Hosanna! To Friday when they're shouting, Crucify! But the disciples gather around him which, by the way, means there were some who believed this message, who did turn to the living God, who trusted in Jesus. And he, he rises up when they come around him, and he goes back into the city. Then the next day, he and Barnabas leave for Derby. Now, I don't know if you've ever woken up, and we, we use the expression, I feel like I've been hit by a truck, right? Where your whole body just hurts, you got nothing. We see our kids take these crazy falls and they just bounce up. You know, they cry because we look worried. Then in your 20s, you can have a hard day and then it's like a day of recovery. Then in your 30s, it's like five days of recovery. And I'm going to assume it just doesn't get any worse after that because I don't want to know. But Paul's probably in his 40s here and he didn't work out too hard. He was literally pummeled with rocks. Until they thought he was dead. And then he gets up, and the next day he takes this 60 mile journey to Derby. It's crazy. It's easy to just read past that. And the Lord sustains him. But you can't imagine it was fun, right? I mean, I'd probably be on that walk thinking maybe I'm not doing this right. Maybe I'm saying too much. 
maybe I should be saying things in a way that will be better received so that people will still like me even if they don't like Jesus. Right? Maybe someone else can do it now. But I don't think that crossed Paul's mind. What's he do? He gets to Derby and he preaches the gospel. Makes many disciples. And again, you have to imagine how unappealing a messenger he was. He was just stoned. He has to be all cut up and just bruised like crazy. But he preaches the good news of Jesus and people say, I want that. crazy which makes me wonder what we're pitching when we share the gospel what people are seeing in us are they seeing a nice safe comfortable put together life with a bunch of nice safe comfortable put together friends or are they seeing peace Enjoy, even in the face of hardship, even if in the face of pain, even in the face of suffering and discomfort that can only come from being restored to God and having full confidence that God will one day restore all things, that he will set all things right, that we know that he loves us and he cares for us and he is with us. And Paul and Barnabas... Uh, they don't take the short route back to Antioch, complete the circle. They trace back all the way. They go back to where Paul was stoned. They go back to where the people who stoned him came from. And he strengthens the soul of the, souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I doubt there's been a time in history where people are less well-equipped to handle suffering than ours. We try to avoid it at all costs. We hide it away as best we can. We run from it as fast as we can. But it's inevitable. Living in this world, we will suffer. How do we handle that? Many of us can't. When we're told that the meaning to life is happiness, that it comes from inside us and we have to be true to that. But when the meaning of life is to be happy, what do we do when we're not? What do we do when we've expressed our authentic selves and are still left wanting? When that's what we think life is about, and that's what we're going after with everything we've got, it's no wonder that we're facing the mental health crisis we are. It's no wonder that we see depression and suicide rates where they are. When the meaning of life is happiness and you're not happy, life has no meaning. But the Bible says life isn't about happiness. It's actually... It's not about what comes from inside of us. It's about a loving God who made us for himself. Made us to know him, that we could know the fullness of his love and care for us. That we could be perfectly loved, perfectly safe, perfectly cared for in him. 
And he doesn't exact sacrifice from us. He lavishes his goodness upon us. And when we see that it's about him, when we relinquish our grasp on the things of this world and cling to him, to bring him glory, he gives us the world too. He fills us with joy, lasting joy and peace, no matter the circumstance, no matter the suffering. As Paul and Barnabas were run out of Antioch by those who would pursue him and stone him, they were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. We all know that we're going to suffer in this life. It's inevitable. But I believe Christianity is the only way that we can actually suffer well. That it has any true meaning. Because we follow in the footsteps of one who suffered. The people in Lystra are so far off when they want to worship Paul and Barnabas. But what do they say? The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men, so they come to sacrifice. They're closer to the truth than they know, because God did come down in the likeness of man. In Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. But he tells his disciples that he came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to suffer. That in him, our suffering, in our suffering, we might be made like him. That we might willingly take up our cross and follow him. And we throw that around, don't we? Like, take up my cross. Like it's something hard that we'll do. It's not for fun. He's not doing crossfit. He's not working out. It's not just hard. We just celebrated Good Friday. He's going to his crucifixion. That's what it is to take up his cross. And as we follow him, it won't lessen our hardships. We'll actually have more because we follow him. We will suffer because he suffered. The world will be opposed to us because it was opposed to him. And we follow him. But we won't care. We'll stare it right in the face and rejoice because we're getting to be more like Jesus. That's why in church history, Christian martyrs would go to be burned at the stake and they're singing joyful hymns. How? Through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. Christ will return and he will usher in his kingdom in its fullness. Where we'll know the truth of what Paul says. He says this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We suffer now, but one day we will be glorified. There will be no more needy because Christ will restore all things. There will be no more idols because we will see God face to face. There will be no more tribulation because all sin and all suffering and punishment will be removed. But in the meantime, as we await that day, Christ calls us and by his spirit he enables us to care for the needy, to confront our idols, and to continue through hardships. 